From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball, a Zoom edition where all the hosts are here. Shane Jensen there in City Center, City, Philadelphia. Adi Weiner. Adi was in Jersey last week. Are you back in Philadelphia now? Are you still in Jersey? I am back in the suburbs of Philadelphia and very much pleased. Very much pleased to be there. Good, good, good. And Eric Bradlow, also in the suburbs of Philadelphia. This is Cade Massey down in Central Texas. We will be doing these one-hour special editions for a while, though within a couple of weeks, we're going to roll in and add some interviews as we start getting our virtual legs beneath us. You, um, We're going to go about an hour. But the first half hour, we will talk about the COVID-19 evidence and models that we've been paying attention to. And the second half hour, we will talk about more conventional sports though it's hard to get very far from coronavirus these days. First, gentlemen, how are you guys doing? Everybody holding up okay? How are you feeling? Safe, comfortable, but going a little stir crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sums it up there. (laughs) It's one of those interesting things, because you could make an argument that in our line of work, that, you know, well, so in my case, I save an hour a day. Like, I'm not driving back and forth between my home and West Philadelphia. And so... Um, I think there's a maybe a presumption that, of course, all that t- extra time would be spent doing work. Um, you know, I think that might have been true, at least for me, for the first three or four weeks. But as Shane and Adi just said, you know, five weeks in your home, um, it's a lot of time, five weeks and counting. <laughs> I don't know who else you have in your home, but my, my house is pretty, pretty busy. Mine's so. pretty busy. My wife <laughs> and two of my sons are here. So that's yeah. pretty busy. Yeah. Well, so, guys, we've we've we've. Um... We've talked a little bit about coronavirus the first couple of episodes, and we thought in this episode that we would take a particular uh, model or paper and use it as a point of departure. And it's not that we're going to drop into too much technical detail. We just thought it'd be helpful to bring a little more structure. And the one we chose this week was one that Nate Silver tweeted, notably, last week. Um, and it's, it's a response to an advance on the IHME model. So the IHME mm-hmm. model, those guys are out of the they're affiliated with University of Washington. Their, their models have had a lot of attention from the beginning, and they've taken some unique approaches, and they've received some criticism, as, as market leaders tend to do. And so this consortium that Silver pointed out last week is out of the University of Texas, and they explicitly try to advance the IHME model. And so we thought there were some interesting advances in there, and so we wanted to kind of unpack it a little bit. We've all had a chance to look at it. We all have some some thoughts about it. We don't need um, any particular structure. Let's just pass it around and see what are the things that caught your eye as you read this paper from the the the, the COVID nineteen consortium at the University of Texas. Eric, well, here's what I let me say the good news. And I ask this question on Wharton Moneyball all the time. I said I always say, um, is it a better model? Is it better data or is it potentially going to be used better? And so I always think that good things start with better data. So the part I was most impressed about this paper was that they were actually using tracking data to measure social distances between people. And so um, there's been lots of discussion about whether that actually is going to lower the, both the spread of the virus and the death rate. And now, um, I mean, anyone can complain with any measure, but this is based on GPS and other phone tracking. So why don't I just start there by saying, I'm happy that this additional data was brought into the analysis so that we can see whether it, forget, you know, it doesn't even matter the parametric form of the, the mathematical form of the model. It's good to bring this data in. So I was impressed with that to start with. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, um, I think it's... Uh... You know, the assumption of the, the, the previous the IHME paper that basically that they could essentially use the policy, you know, the kind of the, the, the government policy as a proxy for what people were actually doing. As we all know, that's a, an incredibly tenuous assumption, generally at best. Um, so I, I agree. I think, I think that's kind of the main real kind of, I mean, they do a couple other sort of more clever things modeling wise, but I think that's, that's kind of the first order advance of this paper is doing a better job of actually, you know, using data to estimate uh, essentially people's, you know, social uh, social isolation practice as opposed to just assuming some kind of common response to government policy. 
So real quickly, the kinds of data we're talking about are now publicly available and lots of academics, industry works with these data, lots of academics are increasingly working with these data. This is phone tracking data. And, yeah. and there are third parties that aggregate these data, they anonymize the data, and then they sell it essentially or make it available. And I started seeing research on this in the last couple of weeks. The research that I was seeing came mostly from economists. And I think this may be an example of, of the value of a consortium where they're blending the epidemiologists on faculty here at UT with some of the economists on faculty who are more accustomed to these data. And it gives you a much more nuanced view. So for example, you can see that some social distancing happens in some locales in advance of these policies. It's not only because of the policies that people uh -huh. start changing their behavior yeah. and the world connected is our world. You see what's happening halfway across the country or all the way across the country. People start to change. You can see it in the data. People start changing their behavior. What's actually interesting about this is that I think, you know, we've talked last week and I know Adi has done a lot of analysis about what may be measured improperly. What's interesting is this is the least of my concerns in this paper. Like this is the thing I actually believe have probably has the most reliability in its measurement. In other words, I believe phone tracking data can be collected. I think it can be aggregated. I think it can be aggregated to a local level. So this isn't just a variable that's got a horrible measurement to it. I think this is actually a variable that's probably measured with, you know, if all of these, everything's measured with error, but I'm not convinced this one's measured with that much error. Right, right. So I approached the problem, as I often do, backwards. I went and looked at the, before I read the paper, I went and looked at the, at the forecasts and looked at the data. And just to see if it passes, um, you know, what immediately kicks out at me. And so, and I end up doing a somewhat of a deep dive into my local neighborhood to understand the data sources. And I was really unhappy with what I, what I discovered. I know I shared it with you guys ahead of time, but it turns out that reporting, uh, so what's being fitted is deaths, deaths per day, essentially, by localities around the, around the, around the country. And what, was, what I've discovered, and actually went and found healthcare workers and people who were, were in more in, in, in the line of fire than I am, these things are really erratic. And um, sometimes they save up like four or five days before they get put in the system. And there's all kinds of different providers. And, and so it, I discovered that, sort of, that Philadelphia has its own website, which is more accurate than the state's website. And that the aggregators that I was looking at nationally are, are actually kind of wildly different. They eventually catch up with each other, but in the short term, they're, they're actually quite different. I also discovered that the real data has idiosyncrasies, which are really, really going to be confusing when, it, it, when we try to make future predictions. For example, I learned this about Philadelphia, and I'm sure it's true wildly. Half the deaths in Philadelphia came in nursing homes. Right. Um, and so whatever social distancing we're measuring, whatever, that's, that's on the half, the other half of the right. data, right? right? And there's, and the other thing is, and this is another thing that we've all been observing, and I know we're all different locations, maybe Shane can tell us a little bit about the city, but social distancing and efforts that are also highly age dependent, as are deaths. So you have this crazy interaction and heterogeneity, not only outcome variable, but also the input variables, which isn't being modeled. And then you throw in the level of heterogeneity, heterogeneity you have over the country. Places, as I, we talked about last time, huge numbers of localities that have almost no cases, and then incredibly, incredibly dense parts of the country, dense in population, maybe dense also in uh, following the rules, um, and that have very large numbers of cases. And that means that whatever we're looking at on an aggregate level may not be actually modeling what's actually happening on the ground. And so when I looked at the forecast, I saw the data bouncing all over the place in ways that probably are due to data reliability. And I also looked at the forecasts that they made, and I think they were correct. And it was a pleasure to see giant confidence intervals or prediction intervals. Because right. they recognize that what they're doing here is really, really hard. Also, let me and so if you just look, say, look at just at, at Philadelphia alone, what's going to happen in the next week could be a significant rise or a significant drop. And when you're hearing that, you're thinking, oh, really? That's hardly a useful um, prediction. So just, just one quick note, Adi. As, as flawed as the death data are, mm -hmm. the death data is so much better than the test data. And this was the motivation that IHME had to begin with. And this is why yeah. these guys are going to continue that methodology. Yeah. We know, they know it's flawed, but it's better than working with the... It's a good reminder that deaths, deaths are the least ambiguous of the outcomes we can measure, but it's not like we measure, we're even measuring deaths right now or collecting it unambiguously. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was just going to say related to Adi's point, um, one thing that's interesting in the model is, and they, they were very honest about this, is that they actually, if you look at social distancing and everything, 
they basically, and the variables in the model, they use a quadratic function. Now, what's the good news? The good news is a quadratic function has a linear term, so it has a term that you multiply by x, you have a term, another coefficient you multiply by x squared. The good news is that it's parsimonious. The bad news is that it makes predictions that if you were gonna try to predict 20 days, 30 days, 50 days, 100 days, are nonsensical because you know, if it's a positive second derivative, you're gonna get this massive upslope. If it's a negative second derivative, as a matter of fact, they're very explicit in the paper. These should be thought of as short-term forecasts I believe there was a sentence yeah. in the paper that even said one to two days. They weren't even trying to forecast out 30 days, 60 days, 100 days, and they were only doing wave one. So, and by the way, it's not a criticism. As a matter of fact, I'm happier with forecasts that are very explicit about the data, explicit about the time period by which they think those forecasts are valid. And I think the authors did a good job of being intellectually honest about what could this be useful for? If someone's saying, I'm trying to estimate the total number of deaths over a 60-day period, this this model is probably not going to capture the richness there. Or, I mean, uh, another way of saying, I mean, they're kind of twice protected by that. They, they're, they are, I, I also appreciate their kind of upfrontness about, you know, the, the intention of this, that this was only be like, you know, used for forecasting at like a week scale or something like that on the, over the period of week. But you also can kind of, you know, even if they did not have that warning in there, the kind of confidence, the, the kind of like intervals around their predictions that they're producing, that amount of variance is, is, is large even at the scale of a week. If you started propagating that out further, it, w- it, w- it would be kind of useless to do it, you know, just because, I mean, it would, it would, it would basically, uh, it would, it, your prediction intervals would cover the whole range of all possible you know, outcomes. Just a quick note on that. I, there's a detail, but it's a nice detail, especially for those of us who try to pay a little attention to data visualization. They do a nice job of representing that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And they, they do it with some new techniques. So they bring in, I, I think there's a term for this. You guys can tell me. I think they look like spaghetti charts, basically. Hurricane charts have started using this. So instead of just the kind of funnel thing they used to show, they're increasingly showing here are, you know, 10 different paths that span possible the range paths, of possibilities yeah. here. And it's much, it, it conveys to you how yeah. wildly uncertain this thing is. It's nice to see that in this context. Well, just uh, let's, break, let's bring it to uh, rubber meets the road. We're going to meet again next week and we'll have a chance to look back at their forecast. So it's, for the United States as a whole, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty confident that it's going to go down. They essentially have no probability that when we come back next week, it'll have gone up in terms of in terms of obviously deaths always increase, but the rate of deaths are, are going to uh, are not going are not increasing. They're saying that they see almost no probability of increasing death rate. Um, well, let's, and- let's let's be let's be precise there because I want to give them an, another piece of credit here for a subtlety. They their peaks are probabilistic, and we ought to be really praising this. So instead of saying the peak in the U.S. will be you know April twenty sixth or whatever, they say as of today, I think it's something like. 78% chance that we're past the peak or whatever the number mm-hmm. is. We can, we can look at it. But so you're saying almost no probability. Let's give them a little bit more credit than that. They're giving us an actual probabilistic forecast that the chance that we are beyond the peak. Yeah, I, Will I, they I, say it's 70, 97%? Yeah, so. and, 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 97? And, and, okay. Just a clarification. Yeah. There, yeah, it's like 89% that we are past the peak. That doesn't mean, within a week, know, that just means that, you know, the max overall daily rates we've kind of, we think we've passed that, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. we could presumably have little sort of subsequent like variation. Like, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like the death rate is, ne- is, is necessarily expected to monotonically decrease from here. Right. Yeah, I've also tried to fundamentally think, you know, it's interesting that we've talked about predictions because that's obviously a big topic of interest. You know, when I reflect back on the paper, I'm not convinced it really is a paper that much about prediction. And let me say why, despite it makes predictions. Um, There is no out of sample validation. So they haven't taken any of the data, held it out, made predictions and see how well it fit. They haven't optimized to fit. They haven't just taken a machine learning model and optimized it. Actually, to me, I think the paper's more, for me, it's more substantive. Is there empirical evidence that social distancing seems to have an impact on the death rates? And since they have a good measure of social distancing, I agree with Adi, they've got a very noisy measure of death, but it's, it's at least at the local level. So it has some possibility of picking up some variation. Um, to me, if you wanted me to grade this paper as a professor, that's what we like to do. If you wanted me to grade it purely as a prediction model, 
I'm not convinced that's what the paper's about. To me, it's more substantive than that. Mm -hmm. that, that I think that's reasonable. I, I, I would, I'm going to take this chance to emphasize, I, you know, they're not trying to solve everything in one go. This has been such a big collective, let's make sense of it. Let's gather, you know, learnings from everybody's individual efforts. It's really kind of the way science progresses. You know, they're, 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 they're putting some advances on this model and somebody else is going to come in and do some of this out-of-sample stuff you're talking about. By the way, we're talking about the work of a consortium at the University of Texas. It's called the COVID-19 Consortium. We have the paper pinned on our website if you want to see the one we're talking about. They have a model where you can look at their projections. They update it daily, and then they have a methods paper. Spencer Woody is the lead author on that. Spencer Woody is about a seven or eight person multidisciplinary. James Scott is, I think, the kind of main advisor kind of overseeing it. Got it. All right. Oh, so that's, that's Shane bringing his University of Texas Shane, stats knowledge. Shane has... Shane has visited down there, took in some football, if I remember correctly. Yes, no, that's right. And, and James is also a friend. He, 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 does, he does solid work. And this is that's another great. example of what I consider solid work. So the, this, is, this is in, the kind of the, in kind of the, the, the academic um, norm. It's a multi-authored and James Scott's the last author, which is kind of a place of prestige. What else at the, on this work, guys, jumps out to you? Well, one thing that kind of uh, was interesting to me, at least, is uh, just the, the, the other kind of main kind of data, you know, quote, quote unquote, change, at least over the uh, HME papers, that they're only using data, U.S.-based data. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, I, I completely understand some of the reasons for it. I mean, they state just in general that, you know, the, the data on death rates and social distance policing in other countries um, could, you know, like the fact that those are necessarily informative over U.S. you know of, of U.S. rates is, is a problematic assumption. Obviously, different countries are are different from the U.S. Still, I, I feel like you know they already constructed this big sort of hierarchical, you know, essentially a Bayesian hierarchical model that allows them to estimate heterogeneity between different states and different locations and all this stuff. I, I'm not quite sure why they didn't go the extra level of applying that kind of idea more generally. I mean, you could also, you know, you could recognize the country, other countries have data that is somewhat informative. You, do, you wouldn't want to set parameters, you know, in China equal to parameters in the U.S., but that's exactly what a hierarchical model allows you to avoid. You can have kind of country-specific parameters that still inform each other, but are allowed to be different. And I'm, I, you know, I, I mean, I think, I, I suspect that kind of the real reason they didn't do that is that we don't necessarily have this awesome kind of social distancing phone tracking data right. in all those different countries. So it's more of a data availability issue than it is actually that they don't think that, you know, that, that, that data wouldn't be somewhat informative for their model. This is actually an interesting question, Shane, because let's imagine they did have the social distancing data. You're right, although they may not. This is something I know you've done some work on and many of us have, which is let's imagine you made the erroneous assumption, which it could be erroneous, that all of these countries are just drawn from the same population distribution. You may shrink towards a common mean, but what actually may be happening is there may be a mixture distribution of countries. There's one set of countries that look, have curves that look like this. There's another set of countries that look, have curves that look like this. So it's actually interesting. While you know, in our notes during the week, I was one that mentioned like, wow, maybe they should have borrowed strength from other countries. If you were to do that inappropriately, you could actually increase the degree of bias that you may get. Yeah, no, that's right. And I mean, it, it, I, I totally agree and that, that, you know, probably at least for this first pass, they were doing enough. I, I completely, you know, concede that point. It might have been better to just restrict the U.S. I think some nice follow-up work would be to potentially try and actually add in other countries' information in it. You know, I, I think it would be really interesting to kind of look at relationships between you know, kind of the effects of, of, of policy on spreading given, you know, different levels of centralization in terms of both like, you know, the country's, you know, like, like healthcare system as well as everything else. I think that would be fascinating, perhaps retrospective work while we all look back on COVID like in a couple of years and on trying to figure out what happened. Maybe most of that work will be retrospective, but, you know, there could be some prospective value to this as well. Just real quickly on that, and then I'm going to kick it over to you, Adi, just real quickly. There have been studies already on different, different responses within the U.S. by geography to these policies. Like it, it appears they go, they go county level yeah. data and they look at how people respond whenever the state does some kind of in shelter or you know, whatever. And they do see this response and they start estimating you know, what pushes around that response to the political leanings of a county push around that response. 
So we're talking, we're, we're, we've seen some efforts already domestically at that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're, I, again, applying that, you know, in a, in a principled way, kind of globally would be an amazing kind of follow-up to this essentially. I would love to see, you know, higher levels of the hierarchy and lower levels of the hierarchy, what they call multi-level modeling. I think that's the other word for the same, same technique. Higher level meeting countries. Um, it'd be hard to do, but, you know, you, you guys are Bayesians. You, you use some subjective priors here, people. I think that's, this is, a, this is what it calls for that, right? No, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think, I think what I think for building that information in. So, so let me also, sorry, let me also drill, drill down and think, I think there's a, an amazing amount of county level data that we could use death data for county levels and then use, you know, add another layer to the modeling that borrows strength across the counties in particular, because death rates, social distancing is very different across that. You get a lot of variability. Also the um, really looking to see how things kind of play out over future deaths are, are about two to three week lag. And uh, when you see, when you get that variance across counties, that could really help. Also, um, you know, we can't talk about this uniquely, right? Social distancing, as I said, in New York City is extremely important, very crowded. I think that's why there are so many cases there. Less so in uh, wherever you are in Texas, I would guess, um, Cade. And, and I think people probably follow it in, in amounts that are, that are different based on both the spread and the, of the virus and the spread of the people. And I, it's not fair to imagine that with the same steps are necessary and have the same impact in different part, portions of the country. You can see, um, and you can see that that's certainly the case. I mean, uh, uh, we have a lot to look at. I think, you know, maybe for next week's conversation, we'll talk about what other countries are already learning from opening up. Because at this point, there's going, there are some of the major European countries are already starting to open up. um, And and, uh, Denmark has already opened up their schools. There's lots of variation. We can come back and talk about it. I know Israel has allowed people to um, create little groups of three, you know, expand your quarantine to three. Um, and stay within that little group, and they've allowed other retailers, but they're kind of like a very halfway measure, and we'll see how that works out for them. Mm-hmm. All I was going to say is that, you know, people study this, um, you know, kind of what are called, whether it's collectivist or individualist societies. I mean, if I had a dollar for every paper, especially in marketing, that looked at basically whether it's attitudes or purchasing data, et cetera, then they said, so what does the whether it's the structure of the government or the, you know, the religiosity of the society or the collectivism versus individualism of the society help tell us, it may well be that a lot of this variation across countries can be explained by, I'll call it classic theories of interaction and others. That's all I was going to comment. That, that's great. That'd be a natural structure to bring to it since there has been so much done on that. But in general, there's this issue in these epidemiological models of Kind of taking a pass on the on the psychology piece or the sociological piece, how humans are going to respond, and they just make an assumption, and that's what they've had to do. But it'll be interesting to see in future generations of these models that they start looking at that with a little more nuance, or parameterizing that, or running simulations on that based on what we're learning here. You know, there's this quote I just ran across this quote the other day from Obama during the Ebola crisis. This is in Samantha Power's new book. She says Obama said this thing when they were trying to figure out how to deal with Ebola. They, had what they, they knew what they wanted to do, but they were constrained politically, or at least they were at risk of being constrained politically because everyone was freaking out. And Obama said, there's the epidemiology of this crisis, and then there's the sociology of it. And we still don't have good modeling of the sociology of it. I think maybe related to Adi's earlier point, let's say we have a model where, let's take the paper that we just looked at. It has social distancing in there. So what may not stay constant and probably won't stay constant is the policy that a local, that possibly a larger geography, but even a locality takes. So you could imagine, you know, economists do this all the time, having a second stage model, which says, okay, we've got Y, the number of deaths, as some probabilistic model of social distancing. And then we're going to model social distancing as a function of policy. So we're going to actually have a two-stage type of equation where some, you know, a policy gets enacted. We see how it, how its impact could affect. We want to predict how it's going to affect social distancing, which will then have a prediction on the number of deaths. And actually, if you understood that, and this could also use international data, if you had data that could do that, this is, this is where you start thinking about things like optimization. What's Mm -hmm. the policy to optimize some function? So let me ask, this is, I've, I've asked y'all this before, y'all, I just am ignorant on this particular methodology. 
we, we've got causality running in the other direction there as well. I think what you're describing is really important, but we have to recognize that the social distancing itself is a function of deaths at a lagged. Mm -hmm. We start seeing deaths other places and we start social distancing. And so you've got to have a model that incorporates causality going in the other direction as well. And I assume we can do that kind of thing. It's just that I've never done it. It's not easy to do. I'll be honest with you. I think like on a methodological level to kind of have that, I mean, that inherent just sort of endogeneity um, there. Um, the I don't think it's here, Shane, the benefit here is that we've got time lags working in our favor. Yeah, we've got time lags. And the other benefit is we've got variation there. We're, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, uh, when this first kind of all went, there was, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a minimization of variation, whereas like almost the entire U.S. essentially kind of locked down within about a week of its, each other, you know, but there, the U.S. is certainly, I, I can almost guarantee, not going to open up at in, in such lockstep, right? There's going to be variation in how these public policies come in in different areas. Trying to tease that out from all the other confounding factors will be a difficult endeavor, yeah. but that's, you know, that's also going to keep, you know, a lot of economists and, and statisticians employed for like the next 20 years or so. Let me give you one empirical observation about that different, that lag. Even though it was close, there was still a lag in, a, in an important way. In the paper, we're, we're talking about this, this University of Texas Consortium paper. In their methodology notes, they have a comparison of New York versus Texas mm -hmm. and how that's, that social distancing changes over time. They just watch the decay in the, you know, the, the activity of colleges, the activity of restaurants, the activity of bars. It all drops from normal to, you know, 80% decline, that kind of thing. And New York and Texas, even though the, the intensity of the problem lagged significantly, Texas was eight or nine days behind New York, the decline in that activity was almost the same. So that Texas had a real head start because of mm -hmm. they, what they were reading elsewhere. There's a real head start. Yeah. And just look at the activity in bars. There's almost exact same curve as it drops off. It's just that it, it happens much later, and so it has less benefit in New York. In Texas, it happens much earlier. So even just that weak lag, because they, Texas wasn't on the front lines, that weak lag has a much more positive impact on the ultimate course of this thing. Adi, you were trying to jump in. Well, there's a bunch of things. First of all, there's correlation in the daily forecasts um, and the daily covariates that is, uh, could be used useful in this way. And this could be the feedback that you're talking about. Um, and and there's and so when you're making a forecast, you want to make them highly correlated with each other. And I think I think the model is actually trying to do that. But getting back to the difference in New York and, and Texas is something you said here. So much of the uh, what's happening at the United States level is driven by New York because so many and New Jersey, though two cases, two states that are the two together contribute so much of the fraction of the death rates. And I think a lot of the declines that we're going to see are also going to be driven by New York and New Jersey. And in particular, I think New York, but certain degree, um, it's, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I think there's so many people are infected there that what might actually happen in New York is not necessarily a model for what will be happening elsewhere Interesting, because right? of the massive, massive infection. Everywhere else in the country, infection rates, and they're starting to get this from, from some of the serological results that are coming out. Um, but I think in New York City, and, and I, I, I just went back and forth with a friend of mine on Facebook about this. I think over a million people have been infected in New York. And that's about 15, 12 to 15 percent of the population of massive scale. I think it, and a place like um, Philadelphia, it's probably our, our Montgomery County local suburbs of Philadelphia. It's probably closer to one in 15 or one in 20, maybe even lower than that. And the rest of the country is probably more like one in 100. And so this the, has big implications for what happens next, right? This, yes. And, this, and, and as you open exactly. up. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. right. Because I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I just went to look at the Minnesota, which is a very naturally socially distancing place from the start, from what I understand. Um, but uh, they're, they're, they've been almost very slowly rising, very, almost no deaths, very, very slow and no prediction to change in the going. It's as if they never really got infected and they don't intend to go down or up by much more than a handful of deaths per day. So you don't see that bell shape and they, rapid, said, they did. Uh, they, we yeah. did say that like a few weeks ago about Sweden, too, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, sweet. Yeah. Sweden actually has tremendous outbreak in their in their senior centers. And and uh, it's, again, hard to make a, a conclusion about the general population when you have such heterogeneity, particularly within the country, states, locations and within those uh, counties, the the, uh, the the facilities. So. 
I think we're going to see big drops in the countrywide, but that's going to be New York. And, and I'm not sure that's what that's going to forecast elsewhere. So fellows, just in the last few minutes on this half of the show, let's get a few predictions from you on what you think is going to happen. And we don't have these presets, so we're up for whatever you think might be interesting. Give us some over-unders on um, what you think will reveal the course of this thing. Like, When are we going to be, what do we take as normalcy? Um, when, whether or not we think we're going to have classes in the fall? What's your sense of these, these kinds of questions? So for, for example, do you think we'll have classes in the fall? In yes, like in-person classes. In like, person like classes. Uh, do, uh, I'll answer the question, do I, do I think that students will be back on campus yeah. classes in the fall? And I think yes. Really? What's that based on, Shane? That's more optimistic than I am. I think it's based on, I, I think, you know, Adi said, had a little bit of discussion of this, I think, last week, that I think as, you know, the kind of peak, as, as this thing goes on and sort of the, like, kind of peak danger, at least in our region, presumably passes, I think psychologically people are, are going to kind of change. I, th I think attitudes of this are going to kind of, are, are going to change. I think it's, it, it's going to be a situation where uh, an increase, the, the kind of cries to open up will start outweighing kind of the cries to stay to stay quarantined um in 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 part because that, of the success that of this early way i would almost think that works against you if, if people open up too soon then we're going to have more outbreaks and that's going to lead to more shutdowns no well right but I, I, again you know yes i think we'll have kind of a summer of that but i think psychologically that summer might just kind of get people into a mindset this this is just something we kind of coexist with let me uh, let me go follow up with Shane. I, I tend to agree, but I'll I'll throw this out. It won't be ordinary classes. It won't it'll it won't be the way it's been. And so I've already been confronting this um, as someone who who uh, whose wife is a rabbi and works on the high holidays, which is in September. What is a congregation like ours going to do come September? Are we going to actually have a a thousand people enter into a building? Mm -hmm. And and so I'm actually thinking no, and that the university will not allow large groups to to assemble and will take sort of halfway measures to prevent certain kinds of so, so so I would actually guess that the large lecture classes will not meet the smaller lecture classes will meet in larger rooms. Um, we'll have public masking kind of provisions. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll have the summer to get used to that. That's my, my forecast. Yeah, I, and, I, and I guess, I, I, I'm, I, you know, technically, I, I still win the over-under if, if that scenario kind of happens. No, you do, but, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. but, um, but, yeah, <laughs> no, and, and I mean, to it, be it, clear. It, it does speak to sort of, I think it's going to be fascinating to just sort of see, um, like, what, you know, because how, how we can reopen parts of the economy with kind of social distancing still as a paradigm. Right. You know, I mean, like I saw a That's funny right. video of somebody trying to like replicate a restaurant experience with social distancing, like the, the wait staff like throws the plate across the room at you to get it to yeah. you or something like that. I mean, it, so Eric, you want to, you want to run us out for this? I, I think Adi and Shane are actually um, discussing the wrong side of the coin. If you'd like, I think it all has to do with housing. I think the bigger challenge will be putting all of these students back in dorms uh, putting them in large buildings. And I think um, this university can have more control over the in-classroom experience, but very little on the out-of-classroom. And I think that's the bigger challenge than the in-classroom experience, which I think they can monitor in a, in a, and legislate, if you'd like, in a much more uh, uh, hard and fast way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think I think the really big crucial factor in kind of opening up and all that stuff is, is widespread quick testing. Like, I, 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 you know, I, I mean, this does come up, obviously, in national conversation. I do not think it gets enough attention in all this that, you know, we really just need to, you know, we have a summer to ramp up testing to a point where we can basically have close to instantaneous, you know, testing. Then that opens up a whole lot of things, right? Potentially. Well, universities have the right and ability to do that testing on their own certification. I mean, will they take, will it, will they take it that far? Do oh wait I, I I don't know the legality they are private buildings right like the you know the the university buildings they can exclude people from isn't that a natural buildings. isn't that a natural step to reach if if the if the if the higher public authorities don't get systems together but universities want to do something themselves mm -hmm. they want to yeah. bring, they have they certainly have all the motivation in the world to figure that out right and God I mean, knows, we, have, we turn the rest of our lives over to universities so why wouldn't we give them a blood sample yeah. 
I mean, they already can exclude entry into a building based on whether or not you have a, an ID card or not. I don't see why they couldn't add this on top of that. But I'm not a lawyer. All right. Well, listen, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball, a special virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We will come back after the break and talk. Uh... You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right. Welcome back. This is Wharton Moneyball, a special virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We are all here. The whole crew, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Reddle, this is Cade Massey. We're in various locations, but we will be doing it in this format for the foreseeable future. We're going to do an hour-long show. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll start adding some interviews to the show. But in the meantime, we're going to give you what we can on the COVID-19 epidemic and on sports. In this half hour, more on the sports front. And I do want to open with what to me was the best sports experience I've had in a while, which was the debut of the Michael Jordan documentary, Last Chance. I'm very curious, fellas. We've talked over the years about Michael Jordan, and, and we're kind of the sweet target for uh, his career in many ways. And did, you, did you have a chance to take any of this in? I think they've released two episodes so far. And if so, what was your reaction? I did. Um, I watched both episodes last night. Um, there was a lot of really interesting stuff there. I mean, some of it I knew, you know, the classic comment by Larry Bird, you know, I didn't play Michael Jordan last night. That was God as playing, you know, that was God in Michael Jordan's body <laughs> last night when Jordan scored 63 against the Celtics in a double overtime game, which, by the way, the Celtics won. Um, it's a lot of interesting stuff that Scottie Pippen, who many people considered certainly one of the top five players of his era, um, was the 122nd highest paid player uh, during that time period. And it was very interesting because Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, told Scottie Pippen when Scottie came from a house, I didn't know this, with like 12 kids and, you know, his family was quite poor. He signed a seven-year, $18 million contract. And the owner told him, look, if I were you, I wouldn't sign this contract. So I thought that was fascinating in it. Um, the other thing that I actually looked up later, and there's a lot of things I could talk about, was... Um, don't feel so bad for Scottie Pippen. Actually, Scottie Pippen's ex-wife uh, tweeted this earlier today. Um, you're going to know, I could frame it as a question, but you'd know given the way I would frame it. Who do you think made more money from NBA, from their NBA contracts in their career, Pippen or Jordan? Turns out it's Pippen. Um, Pippen made $102 million and Jordan $98 million because the last three or four years of Pippen's career, he basically got twenty plus million a year, but he made almost nothing for like the first 12 to 13 years of his career. So I found all of that really interesting. Mm -hmm. I just delighted in it is my main thing. Just an hour of sheer delight. I mean, just delicious, every aspect of it. Stuff you'd seen before and hadn't thought about in a while. Stuff you hadn't seen before. I mean, he was just so remarkable. There's just so much to mine there. I saw a tweet today and I couldn't agree more. So how about 20 episodes? You're going to give us 10 and we'll take 20. I mean, whatever you got. What I also, drink, yeah, what I also thought about. I would do is try to relate. So, you know, it, not that plus minus is the best, but of course they have historical plus minus numbers. So I decided, why don't I look that up? And, you know, so I'm not surprised. At least there's some face validity to it. Michael Jordan is number one all time in uh, plus minus. Um, nice. Yeah, that's not nice. Know that. yeah. Not surprisingly, LeBron is number two. We could argue about that. Nice. Okay. Number three is quite shocking to me. Someone I never would have guessed. Um, CP3. Oh, really? Chris Paul is number three. Distributor, and then a creator. Yeah. He's a creator. Well, so, hey, by the way, this is just raw plus minus. So you benefit greatly in raw plus minus. You play with playing, very good people. Playing with good yeah. people. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Well, the thing that Chris Paul has, which many of you don't know about, I think he's now tied with Larry Bird for the most 40, 50, 90 seasons in the history of the NBA, which means, you know, 40% from three, 50% from the field, 90% from the line. So not only is Chris Paul one of the great assist players of all times, but he's actually one of the great shooters of all time and very accurately. Which hey, Eric, can you give us the actual numbers on the plus minus? Or do, do they have like, I assume this is an average a it game, is. A per game average. Can you give us the actual numbers for those top three guys you just got? Yeah, Michael Jordan at lists at 9.22, uh, LeBron James at 8.94, and CP3 at 7.60. Right. Wow, there's a, quite a bit of separation up at that top. Yeah, 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 and yeah. then just so you, in case anyone cares, Magic Johnson is next at 7.54. And just based on our previous discussion, Scottie Pippen is number 35 at 4.09, by the way. Yeah, so I'm going to leap in here and just point out that plus minus is 
not a sabermetric statistic. Adi, so but look, we should we should be the, very careful promoting catch, such numbers. <laughs> did you catch the face validity of that top four? I mean, also the sample size. By the time these guys these guys have played, um, they averaged more than ten years each, and they played long seasons, and that's a big. That's I mean, so I mean, there's I'm, still there is there's still, come to, on. To, I actually I'm not really I, I I think there's enough face validity to it, but I mean you know. Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan are a great example of why plus minus can still be biased even with large sample sizes. Those guys basically played their entire careers together. And yet, and yet, one in 35. Yep. So there's, yep. there's a pretty no, and, good separation. And, and, and I mean, you know, plus minus, I think in basketball, I think, it, you know, is probably um, less, uh, a little bit less um, – Prone to kind of this, this bias than in hockey, yeah. uh, only because substitutions in, in basketball yeah. are a little bit more random. They're not random, yeah. but they're a little bit less, you know, kind of Good. stringent like you have with line substitutions in hockey. Yeah. So the kind of yeah. weaknesses yeah. that are pre- prevalent to plus interpreting plus minus in hockey are a little bit less in basketball. No, mostly, I would always agree with you, but I'm kind of floored by Florida's too strong word. I'm, a delight, I'm a delighted again by the by the top four on that list, and it's nice when. When, when simple statistics like plus minus bear out well in a larger sample. But I, I, understand, the, I understand the criticisms. Real quickly, one other bit that I haven't been able to dive into yet, but is out there and we need to check out, is a Kurt Goldsberry piece on Michael Jordan's career using XY data that I don't think anybody knew existed. But apparently, NBA collected XY data for all those games, and nobody's ever processed it before. So somehow, Kurt got his hands on these things, and he's gone out and showed – I, my quick look, because I read like two paragraphs in, he's showing how much of Jordan's game scoring came through mid-range jumpers and how this completely, that's the game's completely gone away from that, but it's extraordinary. It wasn't three-point and it wasn't in the lane. I mean, obviously he had some beautiful drives but, and eventually he turned out to be a decent three-point shooter, but most of his game was that mid-range two-point game. And it's extraordinary to see that quantified the way Kirk has. Well, it certainly was later on in his career. I mean, later on in his career, he was a low post offensive player with a mid-range game. And that, you know, it's certain, by the way, it would be interesting to look at that over time, as you mentioned. Yeah, you right. My prediction would be, you know, the first seven or eight years of his career, you know, he was way above the rim. And then the last, you know, people forget, this is another thing, and that the last dance, the last season, the 97-98 season, Michael Jordan was 35 years old. This wasn't a young Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was three or four years from retirement by that yeah. point. And yeah. so the fact that he was still able to do it at his age and all the mileage he had taken um, was impressive. A couple of years playing baseball, sure, to give him some rest. <laughs> well, that's true. Load management, load management, baby. Okay, fellas, uh, there is a major sporting event this week, and it may be the biggest sporting event. It's, it's actually, frankly, one of the bigger sporting events of the year, if you account this as a sporting event, sport-related event. The NFL draft is happening. It kicks off Thursday night, second round, second and third rounds on Friday night, and it'll wrap up on Saturday. Obviously an interesting year because they're not allowed to use team buildings. They're not even allowed to gather. And so the general managers, these poor guys, are going to be by themselves in their basements that are distributed around the country. ESPN is talking about what a completely complex thing this is to produce. The producer of this says it's more complicated. He's on Olympics. He's on all these things. So this is the most complicated by far. They shipped all these guys' little kits to set up, and they're, they're by themselves to set up and plug in. They're doing, a mock, be, one, they're doing a mock one tonight. They're doing mocks on these things. The, the early returns on the mocks have, not, have been entertaining and perhaps not very promising. It's going to be adventurous in many ways. Will y'all consume it? If so, how are, what are you interested in? How, what are you reading ahead of time? What are the storylines that have caught your eye with the NFL one one of the kind of storylines I think is kind of a, a, obviously kind of a COVID related storyline is is you know I I think every draft we have player you know some kind of uh, some part of the unpredictability is 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 these managers and everything are trying to not only, t- only take into account kind of uh, how much past performance predicts future performance but how much past injuries predicts future injuries and so the kind of medical side of things especially with a, with a prominent player like Tua. It would, it would have been a huge story pre-COVID and now where there just hasn't been the same ability to kind of collect medical data on, you know, they're, they're, they're not necessarily able to make as kind of informed medical opinions about players as, as they would have been before. And, and so I think that's a big story. 
So what, what, what do you think? Will that lean? Will they, will they go risk averse in that way? Or with I, I, honestly, you could argue the narrative either way. I mean, theoretically, they should be more risk averse because they have less information. But if you're kind of a general manager, you could kind of paint a narrative where, you know, general managers are most, uh, presumably their number one part of their objective function is just retaining their job. And maybe this is the year to kind of, you know, you draft to a, you know, and, and if he's injured, you can just kind of blame like that COVID circumstance. Oh, it gives like you that. cover. Yeah, it's, it gives you kind of cover you, for- Cover your ass. You That's know. amazingly cynical of you, Shane. Well, I'm an amazingly back. cynical guy. I just want to go back to the draft that we were all at together where the Chicago Bears traded a fortune to move up from three to two to draft Mitch Trubisky. And the reason I bring that up is- I'm still seeing the same, I still foresee the same amount of rush to the top to draft these quarterbacks. I think, by the way, I read a story today, who knows, maybe it's just they're trying to get a larger draft load for their number four pick. Literally lots of, lots of the experts are saying the Giants, the Giants. They just took a quarterback. I understand that. They Mm -hmm. have spent a large fraction of their time interviewing and diagnosing Herbert. And so the story is they may draft him at number four. Now, they may just be saying that because they're saying, well, look, someone then has to jump in front of them. They, their, their pick becomes more valuable. I see a lot of quarterbacks going early in this draft. And I think, I mean, clearly, in my view, Burrow's going to go number one, but it's not, a, it's not 100% lock from what I've heard and from what I've been reading. Um, but I think in the top, certainly six, you're certainly going to have uh, uh, Burrow, Tua, and Herbert. I think the three of them, and I wouldn't be surprised if Love and others go fairly soon after. And do you well, think for those top three, or at least for the for the second number two and number three, if they go in the, like the top five or six, do you think those do you think it'll be a team trading up, or do you think it'll be a team choosing them with their natural slot? If I was the San Diego, or sorry, the L.A. Chargers, if I was the L.A. Chargers at number six, and I wanted one of those three quarterbacks, I'd be extraordinarily nervous right now. Because I am not convinced that, um, like, do I think it's possible the Redskins, I doubt the Redskins at number two are taking a quarterback if they just drafted Dwayne Haskins, or that, you know, um, the Lions at number three who have Matt Stafford or the Giants who just picked a quarterback. It's not impossible. And trust me, people are waiting to jump in front of them. So let me give you a little bit of data. Our friend Benjamin Robinson, who runs a website called Grinding the Mocks, produces, yeah, I think probably the best we can get in terms of forecasting what's going to happen. It's imperfect, but there's generally some signal in these mock drafts. And he started, he's got a lot of people. You can chop it up. You can visualize it. He's got a great site. You can dig, dig into this stuff. And if you just want a real quick take on what's going to happen with these quarterbacks, so Eric just said there's going to be a big rush. They really fall into, the mocks anyway have them falling into pretty distinct tiers. There's a lot of consensus that Burrow will go first. Then Tua and Justin Herbert are both seen as top 10, maybe top five picks, but there's some back and forth between Tua and Herbert. And then Jordan Love is the only one who's predicted to go in the first round. Jordan Love being kind of the long shot guy out of Utah State, big body guy, big arm guy, kind of a high variance pick, high variance opinions out there. But Jordan Love is seen as the fourth QB likely to go in the first round. And then he dropped down a little bit. The next tier are all kind of third-round guys. Jacob Eason out of Washington, Jake Fromm out of Georgia. There's, there's one for you, Matty D. Matt, do you think, uh, you think Jake Fromm is a good pick? And then Jalen Hurts, former Alabama quarterback who ended up his career at Oklahoma, are all seen as kind of – those are quarterbacks five, six, and seven, supposedly. Well, just all so you know, kind of third-round guys. I mean, we've seen over the years how, how much momentum builds on quarterbacks and how they do go flying That's up the point. chart. I mean, Kyler Murray last year – Early 2019, we're like, do you think he's going to be drafted? Like, yeah, turns out he's going to be drafted. Think he's going to the first round. Eventually, like, yeah, and then he, he's first overall. It's just amazing that they run on these QBs, and and increasingly, it's kind of understandable to some extent. But uh, it'll. So one of the, I guess, one of the interesting questions here, besides the Tua Herbert question, which is really interesting, that is is how what kind of run we do see on Eason Fromm and Hertz. When do people start making a bid for that second tier, kind of the second, third tier quarterback? What else? Adi, man, you're supposed to be all about football these days. I know you're hating it without your baseball, but has your football love expanded to include April? 
Is, is that possible or no? Well, you know, I, I certainly enjoy some of the interesting issues, like will there be trading up? But I, I feel like this COVID stuff has made that quiet. Um, maybe it's my lack of attention. Is there, I mean, who do you think at this point is going to be doing a trade down? I mean, you, you are the king of that. Isn't, aren't you supposed to be getting rid of your, you know, collecting picks if you're at the top? Is anyone in a position to even well, think Well, Miami, Miami would be a candidate. Like Miami is pretty high. What are they, six or seven? I Five. Five, yeah. So Miami, if they were worried about any of those uh, prior teams that Eric mentioned, like the Giants or whatever, since uh, taking Tua, like let's say they want Tua specifically, if they were worried about uh, the, the him being taken earlier, they, they certainly have the draft capital to trade up. They've got more draft. They've got like about half the picks in this year's draft, I think. I think that's right. I do think it's interesting whether we're going to see a change in the number of trades. If I had to predict, I would say all of this technology and distance is going to complicate the ability to trade. And it's always more fun when you see these trades. And I'm a little worried that some of that fun is going to be taken out of it. So just uh, for, in other words, if I'm looking to figure out what I should be paying attention to, when will these trades be happening? Historically, when do they happen? They happen real time, mostly when someone's on the clock. So they might have conversations before they get there, but they're usually consummated during that 10 minute or five minute window. Yeah, the part that I also find interesting is, and you've already done this with the quarterbacks, um, but people are already doing this with other positions. You've already broken the quarterbacks into, let's call them tier one and then the next tier. People have done the same with the offensive linemen. There's like four offensive linemen that are thought of as superior than the rest. And so the question is, you know, as me as a Buccaneers fan and Shane too now, um, you know, there's thought of us, we need to protect Tom Brady. There's four really good linemen. The question is, the Bucks are picking at 14. Will there be one of these four linemen left? Matter of fact, a lot of people have the Bucks trading up in worry that there won't be one of these four linemen. Like there's a big drop between four mm -hmm. and five. Wide receiver, as you know, they're saying this is, you know, Mel Kuyper. This is the deepest wide receiver class ever. But most people think there's four to five elite ones. And then what I find interesting is this false sense of precision. Like, okay. So there's four elite offensive linemen, but wow, there's this massive drop to the next one. Or wow, there's five wide receivers. Boy, if I don't get five and I have to go to six, I better trade up 15 slots to do it. That's the part I find the most fun about the narrative. All right, guys. Well, that's been another episode of Wharton Moneyball, another virtual episode of Wharton Moneyball. We'll be back and do this again next week, a special one-hour episode. Eventually, we'll start folding in some conversations with others. But for the time being, we're going to continue giving you some perspectives on the COVID-19 pandemic and sports as they begin trying to figure out how to play and when we'll start seeing games again. So come back and talk to us again next week. Between now and then, enjoy your recorded sports and your Michael Jordan back.